in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from the Derby City of Louisville, Ms. Lizzie Haynes. How you doing? I'm doing great. I It's late here in Louisville, so I'm being a night owl tonight, and I'm excited to talk about some movies. That's right. And from the best coast, the West Coast, from San Diego, Mr. Tim Withers. How you doing, sir? I'm good, good. How are you doing? I am good. For the first time on the show, well, let's get to know you a little better. Let's just break the ice here. If a biopic movie was based on you and was being made, what actor would you want to portray you on the big screen? Now, it's up to you. It could be a romance, a horror, drama, whatever kind of movie you want. But who's going to play you, Tim? I decided I would shoot the moon and it would just be Tom Cruise. Why not? Nice. Okay. <laughs> like it. Okay. I have nothing in time with Tom Cruise, but it'll make a million dollars and I'll, I'll get some cash. Okay. Lizzie, how about you? So I actually struggled with this because I have a hard time with the celebrity lookalikes. So I just, I don't think I've ever seen anyone that I think looks like me. So I went and asked my husband, <laughs> just let it rest in his hands. I do love a good horror movie, but I wouldn't want to live in one. So I chose a romantic comedy and he chose Emma Stone for me. That's a, yeah. She's young, she's funny, self-deprecating. It feels like it works. That's a great choice. For much of the time we've been recording, I had like long hair and it was I have long curly hair and I have been uh, compared to Kyle Mooney many, 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 many times. And like, hey, you look like Kyle Mooney. And then I cut my hair and I stopped getting that as often. But if you want to get to my personality, not just my physical lookalikes, I have uh, said that uh, people say Charlie Day would be the correct answer. So both Chad and my wife and I independently have come together suggesting this would be it. I said either Charlie Day or Mikey Day. So, uh, and then the other two said Charlie Day independently with no cueing. So I'm pretty high strung, I guess. So what's the last movie that you saw, Tim? I saw a movie called Not Wanted. It's 1949. I was, I was looking up Ida Lupino movies. Uh, she was an actress and a director and a producer and a writer. One of the very few women in Hollywood to do that ever. And definitely in the 50s. So it was her first uh, movie that she directed. So I, I tracked that down on YouTube and, and uh, enjoyed it. It was really good. It was all about unwed uh, teenage pregnancy. So it was very controversial. Ooh, 1940. That is. Oh, yeah, that, that's way ahead of its time. Yeah. Lizzie, how about you? What's the last movie you saw? I saw Murder by Numbers. I think it's a possibly early aughts, maybe late 90s thriller with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Gosling. And it's one of my old favorites. It's one of those cozy horror movies I talk so much about. Mm-hmm. The last movie I saw, we recently covered Smokey and the Bandit on the show. So I had so much fun with Smokey and the Bandit. I was curious what Smokey and the Bandit 2 held in store. It is not the classic that the first one is, but I still had fun with it. I'll tell you, this is how old I am. I saw both those in the drive-in, man. 
We still have a drive-in here in Pittsburgh. I don't know how it's endured. Most of them, many of them have closed across the country, but we still have our drive-in. But uh, I, I was not able to see Smoking the Bandit 2 in 1980 in the theater set. So um, I, would, I would have been negative five years old at that point. So Drive-in is so fun. Lizzie, what movie are we going to cover? We are going to talk about 1944's Double Indemnity. Not single indemnity, double <laughs> indemnity. That's right. Yeah. So this movie stars Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, Edward G. Robinson, Porter Hall. The release is 1944, as Lizzie mentioned. It budgets for $980,000, which that doesn't even sound like very much money in today's money, but $1944, that is a lot of money. And this is all according to Wikipedia. So uh, the grossings was $5 million. I don't have box office details prior to 77, so I don't have exactly where it ranks in the box office, but the number one movie from 1944 was going my way. IMDb gives Double Indemnity an 8.3, pretty solid, and the critics of Rotten Tomatoes even more. It's 97%, and the audience score is right there at 95%. It is nominated for seven Oscars, but it did not win any. So it has nominees for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Writing, Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Music Scoring, Dramatic Comedy, Motion Picture, Best Sound Recording. It generally lost a going my way for most of these, not all of these, but pretty heavily through all of these. So Billy Wilder went to the Academy Awards ceremony expecting to win, and even though his studio had been backing the other big hit of the year, Going My Way, after the show Double Indemnity lost the category, it became evident that it would be Going My Way throughout the night and it was going to be a sweep. So McCary beamed his picture as they won it at the award, and they named Best Director. And Billy Wilder, who seems to be quite a character, could no longer take it. And as McCrary made his way to the stage, Billy Wilder, in poor sportsmanship, stuck out his foot in the aisle and tripped McCrary as uh, he stumbled. He gleefully uh, moved forward anyway and uh, collected his award. But after the ceremony, Billy and his wife Judith were waiting for the limousine to arrive, and they yelled at everybody that they could hear them in the press and all this. Uh, what the hell does the Academy Award mean? For God's sake, after all, Louise Rayner won it two times. Louise Rayner! So. Wow. So, yeah, a little bit of a classless night for Billy Wilder, but he made a heck of a movie here anyway. The AFI has his back, though. The n- number 38 movie on the top 100 movies of all time in 1998 when they did this, and then they came back and revisited it later in 2007. It went all the way up to 29 in the top 100 of all time. So this is, this is high territories. It's even higher in the top thrills. Number 24 in the top thrills. 84 in the top passions. This is a troublesome passion. We'll get into that later. And in terms of heroes and villains, Phyllis Dietrichson is villain number eight. So this is upper echelon villainry here. Tim, have you seen Double Indemnity before? Uh, a few times, about 12 or 13, I think. It's awesome. So tell us, what was your first time with it? And what's it like coming back to it today? Uh, first time I saw it was in college. So it had been uh, in the 80s and I uh, loved it right away. And I knew, I knew Barbara Stanwyck mostly from television. Same thing with Fred McMurray. So it was, it was a big shock seeing the two of them going against type. And then I just saw it again for the last time a couple of nights ago with a good friend of mine who'd never seen it before. Uh, I've introduced it to several people over the years, and everybody's really liked it. And he really liked it. It was like watching it again. It's just so crisp and clean, and, and the storytelling and the acting is subtle for 1944, I think. I think Barbara Stanwyck did a great job. I think she was robbed of an Oscar. Uh, but she's my favorite actress. I'm a little, little partial. Favorite actress? Wow. 
And yeah, so she she was nominated, as you said. Ingrid Bergman got it for Gaslight that year. Tough competition. Lizzie, how about you? Have you seen Double Indemnity before? I had not. So I've mentioned this before on the podcast that I don't intentionally avoid old movies. I just don't make a conscientious effort to revisit them. I've been trying to get better because my dad is a huge lover of old movies together. And so it's been a really fun new hobby for us to really chat about them. When I knew that we were going to be covering this movie, I reached out to him to see if he'd already seen it. He sent me a very long text message, which I avoided reading because I was afraid there were going to be spoilers, which there were. <laughs> so, well, kind of, I guess. I mean, well, we'll get to, to some of that later. But I was really excited to watch this movie just so that I could go back and, and chat with my dad with it. And I got to say, I really... I loved it. I thought it was really fresh and really fun. Tim, like you like you said, I feel like it just, it really, the storyline holds up so well. And, you know, it has that very Agatha Christie film noir flair to it. And I've seen many movies like that. So I knew how the formula was going to be handled, but I had a lot of fun nonetheless watching it unfold. Yeah. You saying that, Lizzie, makes me think back to you had uh, you had your podcast before you came and joined us over at the Millennial Movie Matchmaker. Yeah. And I remember you on your Christmas episode talking about how your dad likes, you know, It's a Wonderful Life and uh, That's the, right. the, uh, the enjoyment that you get from watching an older movie and sharing it with him. So uh, I'm glad this was, was on his list as well. I'm curious what the dad text was. But I also hadn't seen this one before. I have, I, Lizzie would let you know, like I was putting it together that noir was my thing and I needed more of this. Last year, I, I did a dealer's choice where I picked The Killers, which Burt Lancaster, Ava Gardner, good movie. I don't know. Have you, have you seen this one, Tim? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And suddenly I was like, Laura, Asphalt, Jungle. I'd been putting these together and I didn't even realize it. I really dig these old noir movies. I like the style of them. I like the visuals of them. And I think it's safe to say that this is one of the pinnacle movies of that genre. And I had a great time. It was one of those things where I had seen it on the thrills list and the all-time movies list. I was surprised how thrilling it was. This wasn't just like, a, oh, this was exciting for the time. This was just exciting. It was really very cool. I'm not going to spoil too much because we're about to get on the other side of the spoiler wall. But this one was a real winner and if you haven't seen it you don't want it spoiled for you we will be back after this message as there will be spoilers that lie ahead welcome to the all 80s movies podcast i'm bill and i'm jason and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters the flops and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies the 1980s so whether you're a brain a jock a valley girl or a jedi we've got some 80s classics for you do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back. This is your final warning. And for those who haven't seen Double Indemnity since 1944, Lizzie, do you want to refresh people's memories? 
Walter Neff, top insurance salesman in Los Angeles, pays a visit to one of his clients and is instead greeted by his client's wife, Phyllis Diedrichsen. The two establish a quick attraction to one another. Phyllis teases the idea that they can be together and develops a plan to play into Walter's skill set. Together, they plan to murder her husband and collect her brand new insurance policy that she's taken out for him, unbeknownst to her husband. Walter plans to have the murder take place on a train in order to activate a clause called double indemnity, where an insurance company pays double due to an unlikely accident. Their plan seemingly goes off without a hitch, but it's only until Walter's boss, Keyes, won't let go due to the, quote, little man inside of him pushing him to find the truth. Walter is getting nervous, and upon digging deeper, finds that Phyllis has been secretly seeing her stepdaughter's boyfriend. Walter feels foolish knowing that the love Phyllis felt for him was nothing more than a coup. He feels backed into a corner after Keyes points out that when two people commit a crime, they're on the same train until they reach the cemetery. Walter goes to confront Phyllis. She admits everything and shoots him, but can't finish him off. Instead, Walter shoots her, killing her. He stumbles back into the office to confess his crimes with the intent to run, but is stopped by Keyes, who has overheard his confession, and Walter is stopped before he can escape. Keyes leaves Walter with the closing statement of, you're all washed up. Well done, well done. So, Tim. This is an impactful movie. This is a big movie. Let's just go right to it. Why is this movie so important, do you think? I think in terms of film noir, uh, as you were talking about before, you're trying to get into it more. It's my favorite genre. It has been for probably most of my adult life. And I think, as you said, it's the pinnacle. There's not many that are better than Double Indemnity. From the writing to the acting, the lighting, the, the camera work, the classic shot of, of the sunlight coming in through the Venetian blinds. It's all there. And yeah, people have done it before. Uh, Billy Wilder did it, but a few did it better. Uh, I think it's just it's just one of the best ever. It's an interesting one. Lizzie, if I recall, you're getting your feet into the water slowly along with me on this one, because this is, as I mentioned before, uh, you, you were introducing me to the killers. You know, we discovered that one together. That's right. How is this going for you? You have that thriller. Like, I know when like, you did covered Kiss the Girls, like this crime darkness i mean there's kind of some neo-noir elements within these sorts of movies is this hitting your spot that you already like for familiar territory for you for thrillers for sure absolutely i truly i never really thought about the fact that noir noir still really exists it's very much still happening in modern day times i just never really realized that that was how we would refer to the genre so even the movie that i watched the, my most recent movie, Murder by Numbers, you could almost kind of consider that a film noir in, in some respects. And so I think I love a good thriller where you're trying to really, I think there's two components, correct me if I'm wrong, you both I feel like are more experts on on the genre, but there's the detective element to a noir, but there, I think what's more important is really also there's a dramatic scenery that's taking place also just in the overall way that the movie is shot. There's like a darkness and almost a fogginess and thickness to the air that really almost acts as if it's a secondary character. And I think that it does, this movie does a really good job of doing that where I think I enjoyed this movie a lot, probably more so than some of the other movies that I've seen that are made kind of within recent time frame is Tim, you really touched on, I think the acting is really fresh. I, I've seen 
probably from the 40s on to the 60s, you can kind of, it can kind of go touch and go. I've seen some acting where it's really over the top and like we talked about it in network. I know I, that's like 30 years from, from this point, but it's like everybody's just screaming. And I think that the acting is really fresh. Like the writing's great. And I think they just, they really picked top bill acting in order to do it. And it just, the whole thing just came together really beautifully, I think. Tim, I think Lizzie has really started to nail much of what a noir is. Like, how else would you add to that? What, what makes a noir noir? I think one of the classic elements is a femme fatale, and you don't you don't have a, a more fatal feminine person than Miss Barbara Stanwyck as Felix Dietrichson. She's one of the best. That's number one. The uh, again, the cinematography, the lighting, a lot of that came from Billy Wilder's background working in in Austria and Germany in the film industry. A lot of that carried over from the from uh, what what was going on in Germany with the filming style over there. And I think a lot of it is just doomed characters. Walter Neff, from the minute he walks into that house, you know that's not going to end well for him. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and I think that's that's a lot of, a lot of film noirs. People sometimes they make bad decisions. Other other times bad things happen to them, but it, it hardly ever ends well. Yeah, I was looking over so. Uh, Robert Sklar, who is the chairperson of the Department of Cinema Studies at New York University, Tisch School of Arts there, he said that, yes, it is a world of crime, often from the point of the criminal. So Lizzie was right. There's this detective business about, but it's often some, from somebody in the crime. And then he said it's exploring psychosexual themes, which are aspects of like sexual impulse and like the desire. So in addition to that danger and that crime, you've also got, you know, this other tension that's pulling in there. and then which, as Tim mentioned, is through that femme fatale character that you often have. So, I mean, we saw this with Ava Gardner's character and the killers. And um, I guess Laura, when we covered that, that definitely is noir as well. Danger surrounds her. I don't think she's as vindictive as these two characters are here. But I still think it stands that, you know, this, this highly desirable character comes with a world of trouble as part of that. And then I think it's interesting that the style is added to there. So those other two things feel like a genre. Like those things feel like, but then it has to have that style, that dark claustrophobic framing, low key lighting, which low key means like you've got high contrast, like dark, dark shadows. And the sources of the light often come from within the scenery itself, whether it be a window or a light or something within the world that's there, not just studio lighting that's, you know, illuminating everything around them. So it's interesting that a lighting technique and a style can help paint the picture here. And as you pointed out, Tim, it checks the boxes in a way that everything else, there, it has many imitators that follow this up, if that's, uh, if that's fair to say. Definitely, yeah. I was going to just mention, uh, if you want to follow up on another story by the same writer, Postman also rings, always rings twice. That's also really good with Lana Turner and John Garfield. It's basically the same story, but it, it, it's really well done as well. Now. And Double Indemnity seemingly breaks pretty fresh ground. I don't know if it's the first movie, but it's got to be one of the first movies that explores the means and motives and the opportunity for committing a murder. And keep in mind, movies want the good guys to win. There's morals that have to be upheld. There's expectations in society. You are dealing with people who are doing bad things and they know it. And they're, I mean, our main character, Walter Neff's kind of like, I can do this. And he's excited by it. And there's this woman who excites him and she wants to do it. It's not necessarily 
only his drive to her, but it's this thrill for him that he can kind of get away from it that lures him into this world. Like you said, Tim, it's like good people making bad decisions is like a is a is a part of this uh you know, I guess cliche that it would go on to become, but why is that I don't know why that's so interesting, but we enjoy seeing the downfall of a character in movies. We it it happens over and over again throughout cinema and here it happens early on, but this is pretty repugnant for many at the time. Some people were put off by this, several actors, and we'll get into this later, just didn't want to touch this movie because the content was dicey for 1944, if that's fair to say. Yeah, definitely. Barbara Stanwyck was really worried that it was going to hurt her career playing such a horrible person. And the famous quote that I've read in so many places, Billy Wilder said to you, are you an actress or a mouse? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Minnie Mouse is doing just fine in film. She's she's great. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you can sign me up for Minnie Mouse's career. You said Barbara Stanwyck's your favorite actress. I'm not as first as you are, Tim, with her. And I think a lot of our audience may or may not be. So help give us a picture of what you were expecting from Walter Neff and Barbara Stanwyck, given that you said they are playing against type here. Yeah, as I said, I'm, I'm a child of the 70s. So, you know, my afternoon was usually watching My Three Sons or, or watching uh, Big Valley with my grandfather, that type of thing. That That's how I knew these actors. And, you know, those characters in those shows were squeaky clean. They were wonderful. They were wonderful people, family people. Um, and so when I first saw Double Indemnity, it was like a slap in the face. Like how, how good these people were as actors, not just as, as TV stars. And then that, that was probably my first time I really paid attention to Barbara Stanwyck. That uh, was after I saw this movie. And then since then, I've been a great fan. So maybe it was like, uh, I'm just going to make a more modern day reference. So was it like watching the wholesome Jennifer Aniston go from being in Friends to like doing horrible bosses and putting <laughs> poor Charlie Day in the worst of situations all of a sudden? <laughs> if you want to uh, put Barbara Stanwyck and Jennifer Aniston in the same uh, sentence, I'm fine with that. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> she did uh, one of her first roles right outside, just funny enough, since we're talking about femme fatales, one of Jennifer Aniston's very first roles when Friends ended was derailed with Clive Owen. Have you seen that movie, either one of you? It's really good. If you, I won't spoil anything for you. If I, This is where you need Fry. This is where you need Fry to be on. He's seen them all. So Early aughts movie, really, really good. And it's a complete detachment from Rachel. It's very jarring to see her like that, for sure. Yeah. And so, Tim, one of the other things that happens that I think is an interesting storytelling thing this is a flashback confession story. Why is that compelling? They spoil the whole movie for you in seven minutes in. And conceptually, you should not. You've already told me what's going to happen. You know, I didn't get away with it. I didn't get the money. I didn't get the girl. Seven minutes in. What keeps us here? Why are we so invested? How am I so intensely interested and excited by everything that comes after that? I just think it's the way the story unfolds. Uh, that's another element of, of film noir we haven't really talked about. Many, many of them uh, have, have big segments and flashbacks. That's another, another typical of that genre. And I think it's just the, uh, I go back to Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler. They tell a hell of a good story. Uh, some great dialogue between all these characters. Everybody has, has a, a, at least one great scene, I think. It's just great storytelling, I think. Yeah, I, it's not as complicated as, say, a Christopher Nolan movie later goes on to become, but I find there's something neat about, you've given me so much information, almost like a poker hand. I know you have some cards, but I have no clue how you got from point A to point B, and I'm very interested. 
and they do a good job to make you care about the characters. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I have to say is something interesting of this time that may be dated for some people. I want to know how you feel about this. Lizzie, there's a fast way of speaking. There's a certain diction. It's parodied in something like The Naked Gun later, where the narrator's talking very quickly, and the person talks back to them in an unnatural amount of pause, and they're very pithy, witty comments of, you know, like, there's a speed limit in this zone. How fast was it going? It's like about 90 miles per hour. Like, and so like, there's like this, this boom, 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 machine gun speed that's not normal conversation speed. How's that go down for you? Right when you brought up this sentence, that conversation was the first thing that I thought where he was like, suppose you get off your bike and give me a ticket. Suppose I cry on your shoulder. What if I cried on your husband's shoulder? He's like, well, that tears it. (laughs) To me, that whole interaction was to just very quickly establish that there's this intense flirtation between the two of them because that's really it. Like they... You know, it's, hi, I'm here to renew your husband's automobile insurance. Like, yeah, of course she's attractive, but then this one conversation like solidifies it because in the afterwards, or excuse me, before that, uh, you know, she's kind of teasing him of like, what do you know about accident insurance? And he's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like I see where your head's at. I don't want any part of this. And then after that, then, you know, that little whole conversation goes down. I find it charming. I think it's, always feels like watching these movies in the 40s that there's kind of this sweet innocence to the world and of course we're watching a movie that is anything but but that conversation in and of itself felt sweet and innocent to me and just charming i it works for me i don't know why it puts me in a time period just as much as the wardrobe just as much as the black and white itself but yeah i'm with you i felt like i got in a little time machine and tim correct me if i'm wrong people didn't talk like this in 1944 either but as an outsider looking back at 1944, I like to think they did. <laughs> it's, it's typical of a lot of movies of that time. Uh, I think it's also typical if you look at Billy, Billy Wilder's work, his characters talk really fast. <laughs> that, 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 if, if you look at uh, something like It Hot, how, how quick the patter is between you know, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, that's classic Billy Wilder. Uh, and I see, you see a lot of that here mixed with the, the hard-boiled detective fiction of, of Raymond Chandler. And that's why the screenplay, I think, uh, works so well even today. Yeah. Beyond just that, though, getting into these characters a little bit, Walford Neff is, like I said, he's not just blinded by lust and greed. That's the traditional, you know, weak man, strong woman, you know, femme fatale drawing him in there. But there's something more to that, isn't there, Tim? What's making Walter Neff do this in your mind? Because I find that's one of the most interesting things that makes this go to another level from some of its counterparts. Well, I was able to, when we talked about doing this podcast recording, I was able to read the novel that it was based on. So I, l- I learned a little bit more about the, the background. Uh, and I think he just likes the thrill. I think it's, it's partially that she's so attractive. It's partially that that's a heck of a lot of money. But I think he just enjoys the thrill of it, too. I think he's bored with his life as an insurance agent. Yeah, he's at the top of the game. He seems to be topped out. Like, I don't sense that he's got a lot more to shoot for for advancement. I sense that apathy that you mentioned there. I, I, maybe I'm just as a subcurrent, but I, I totally see what you're saying in this. He's ambitious in his job at all. He's just kind of going through the motions until he walks into that house. Yeah. I agree. Well, it's really clear that he's not thinking with his brain, you know, if you know what I'm saying. And I think he, uh, I just, I think he's kind of working on that animal instinct that 
that almost just if you do it too much, then you, like you all said, you just kind of naturally become apathetic to the people around you. So you're thinking about what you can gain. And he's only really thinking about how whatever is going to affect him right now in this moment. You know, he doesn't really even know Phyllis that well or anything really about her. He just knows that he's attracted to her and that she seemingly is attracted to him and that she's promising him all these things. And he's like, oh, cool, sounds great. Like, I'll, we'll do what we have to do. And we'll figure it out. Like, it's just almost childlike, like this immaturity and quite frankly, just like a stupidity, I think, too, along with it. Yeah, one thing along, along that line that I learned while I was looking into the movie, that anklet that she wears, and he keeps talking about how nice the anklet looks on her, and, and are you going to wear the anklet next time I see you, that type of thing. Evidently, that was a signal for married women that they were available to fool around. Oh, wow. my watch, goodness. Watch out for the ankle bracelets then. Okay, I will never wear an anklet. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I will never wear an anklet. <laughs> they were really big in the 90s, and they've made a comeback, but I will not partake. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's interesting you mentioned also the the concept of femme fatale, because I, something that I think one of those things going into what that is, though, not only is, it, is a dangerous woman luring a man into a situation that will ultimately become his downfall. I think there's something interesting about those characters. They're not just pretty. They're smart. They're witty. They're aggressive. They're counter to that time. And I was reading that. So World War Two happens and that is very much important to the development of the noir film women are going to the factories they're working they're the role of women in society is changing and quite honestly a lot of men are threatened by this and there's this insecurity of this this independent strong-minded woman and these femme fatales characters they go get what they want they use every means possible and sometimes they you know they're not afraid to wield a gun I've read that they have masculine qualities that come into them, whether it be just wearing pants or how they're doing something or how they conduct themselves. I don't, I, they're so often portrayed as hyper feminine, beautiful in some ways, but uh, apparently there's a masculinity and assertiveness that, um, quite honestly, I just think is incredibly attractive. And so they're drawing um, these men in and throughout these movies. And Barbara Stanwyck's textbook, all of this. And it's a very interesting character to me. And I get the number eight villain. You know, Walter Neff knew this was a bad idea, as Lizzie pointed out. But she's got that ankle bracelet on, too. So, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, that's that psychosexual kind of thing that was, that was mentioned earlier by um, chairman of New York University, Sarah. So I just think that the, what that does for the plot makes situations that ought not go completely plausible. but. This notion that this, these highly independent women are going to tear you down being a type of thing. I don't know how that plays. Lizzie, from a female perspective, I don't know. Obviously, today's times, we look at this so differently, but this is part of what creates this femme fatale in the, in the 40s. Do you view it differently as a female watching these situations? Yeah, well, I think, I think you have a point in kind of why the femme fatale was, was born, right? Is this, this idea of women are starting to gain more independence. And regardless of whether or not you thought that was, you were on board for that, I think that there is something to say about society when change happens. There tends to be this uncomfortable 
kind of almost anxiousness with change. And, you know, with anything, there has to be an equilibrium, right? So, or excuse me, in order to achieve equilibrium, there's kind of an overcorrectness that happens. And so, you know, you go from like the sweet, leave it to beaver housewife who makes you apple pies that sit in the window. And before we can get to an equilibrium of women are just equal, we're capable of good and we're capable of bad. We're there's a spectrum just like there is for men. I think that there's that first kind of initial overcorrection of, well, you're not going to be wearing these cute little checkered dresses and making me making me dessert. Instead, you're just going to be this super sexy wearing this really tight dress. And instead of being really sweet and serving, you're going to be self-serving and almost dangerous to me. And so I think perhaps I think you're onto something of kind of why femme fatale exists. There is something that's that's fun about a femme fatale for sure because it is it's exciting to watch. I guess as a woman, I'd be lying if I said there isn't something I think that's funny about a man just completely like giving in where it's like from my perspective, I'm like, buddy, come on, like there's so many fish in the sea. <laughs> like really? Like you're gonna like you're gonna go through all of this just to get into bed with Phyllis who like you've known for how long. I mean, so there is an element that's funny to it, but yeah, I think you're onto something of kind of why femme fatales exist. And I think that they've stuck around just because it's exciting and there's something, you know, that dangerous, sexy element is always going to sell tickets no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. We're remarkably simple creatures and uh, I'm not proud. It just, (laughs) The other things that were interesting, Tim, that you mentioned were Billy Wilder comes from a European background. It's interesting if you study this a little bit. You know, I'm an architect. I love modern art and I love German expressionism. And that's you, you can just Google it. If you, it's, a, it's, a, it's really cool. I, I love German expressionism. If you like Tim Burton, the German expressionism is directly feeding everything that he's doing. But these guys are coming over from there. Otto Preminger, who made Laura, which we covered. Great movie. Highly recommend it. Fritz Lang. We've got Billy Wilder. You know, we've got these Germans who are coming over, and they are bringing with them the style of this one. And Tim, talk about not just, yes, we all talked about the dark lighting, the contrast and stuff like that, the weird angles, the low perspectives that make people seem more dangerous. But what is it here in this movie? That's setting the mood for you with the style. I think a lot, of, a lot of it has to do with Phyllis's house. I, I kept going back to uh, something we were saying before about you know the film noir looking kind of dusty and and shadowy, and her house just looks unclean. And he walks in and he says, "Oh, I can see the the dust in the, in the sunlight across across the room." And I, I noticed little weird things like uh, they have a little fishbowl behind their sofa. And the water in that bowl is filthy dirty. And I'm thinking, Phyllis is not a very good house cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, little things like that come up to me. Uh, Billy Wilder's attention to detail uh, all through the movie. The, the little bit where uh, Fred McMurray will strike a match uh, with his thumb. And that's carried through to the very last scene of the movie uh, as, as a sign of the bond between Walter and Keyes. Just little details like that, I think, uh, stand out to me. Uh, and again, I, that goes back mostly to Billy Wilder. Yeah. They actually took like silver dust and put it in the air to catch the light to to accentuate exactly what you're talking about. So it's not by happenstance that that happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I from the get go, the man on the crutches, which you, takes a while for you to figure out what that's all about. Because I kept going like, "What's the crutch guy? Like, where's the crutch guy?" <laughs> um, so um, 
as a first-time watcher, the movie opened up on that so strongly. It took a while to get to it. I don't know, looking back to it, if that's an enticing like thing, but the imagery of the silhouette walking towards you had my attention immediately. So much so I kept asking, like, hey, where's Crutch Guy? So, Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. That's actually what really piqued my interest because I, I've said this many times on the podcast. I'm in a habit now of just pressing play, so I have no idea what – I had no clue what this movie was about when I started it. But just that really dark angle and the deep, ominous music, I mean, I was ready to go after that. Yeah, I think all of these things happening in the dark pulls you into a world of – these are inherently, like we said before, unsavory people. So it's funny that these things also have to, at the time, be handled delicately. I actually wasn't for sure the first time I watched it that she shot him and he shot her because they're handling this so delicately because they can't show blood. They can't show gotten shots on the screen because it'll just be too much for the world at this time. But I did kind of go like, wait, didn't she just shoot him? He's like standing up initially <laughs> like Superman, like nothing happened initially. And then I was like, it took me a while to be like, oh, no, she did shoot him. I was right. He and he, he seems to be a I thought it was one of those like where you get hit like the lower side, like in old movies and you're just seemingly walk around for the whole rest of the movie unaffected by it. <laughs> um, yeah. But but no, it was a bigger deal. I actually think it's funny you mentioned that because I had to rewatch the whole sequence on the train because I thought that I had just missed it. I was like, you know, he's on he gets on the train and you know he's pretending to be. Mr. Diedrichson and they kiss goodbye, all the things. And they're there and he's on the crutches talking to that gentleman. And for some reason, I still was expecting to see her husband on the train and was like waiting for everything to go down then. And so when he jumps off the train and gets into the car, I'm like, wait, did I just miss everything? Like, how did that, maybe they're not showing it because of just like the time, but I've, I feel like I missed something and I rewatch it again. And then finally, when if I would have just been patient for 30 more seconds, I would have seen everything. But even so, they really do not show you. I mean, even the fact that they carry what looks like his dead body, I felt like was probably a big deal for that time. Tim, you've seen this way more than I have. I've I watched this twice for this. I got to say, on a second viewing, even once you know what happens, it's still good. That's kind of special, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about it. Um... Uh, after watching it again the other night, uh, the storytelling is just really crisp. It moves along really fast. There's not a wasted scene uh, in that movie. It, it, they're all important to, to tell in the story. And as I said, I, I got a chance to read the novel in the last few weeks. And a lot of the scenes are, are word for word from the novel. The ending's very different. We can talk about that later if you want to. But um, the, a lot of the scenes, the, there's one specific scene you guys mentioned before uh, where Edward G. Robinson is talking about all the different insurance statistics about suicide. That is almost word for word out of the novel. It was really cool to oh, see. Oh, nice. Yeah. That was like a monologue. I loved that. I loved his accent too. Like the way he kept saying suicide by leap, suicide by leap. I just, it was really intriguing to watch. Yeah, that was the best scenes. I was new to Walter Neff, by the way, switching into acting just a little bit here. I did not know him as Mr. Nice Guy. This was my introduction into him. But I see the nice guy in him. I think you want nice guy in this. You want to like him. I think he is entering this world of the darkness. He's your anchor to you, the world of like, I go to my job. I'm good at my job. I, you know, like you said, Lizzie, you're a completely law abiding citizen. Why do you want to, why <laughs> do you want to do this? And um, I think that's good that Walter Neff was like that. 
I read some other actors, including Alan Ladd, George Raft, Brian Donnelly, James Cagney. I can't picture him in this. Uh, Spencer Tracy, Gregory Peck, Brian Donlevy. Like they, they all were up for the leading role, but they passed on it. Again, this people viewed this as risque material. Talking about how Walter's basically a good man. Remember, after that big flirtation, you know, how, how fast was I going, officer, that type of thing. Uh, talking away. He was not going back to, to see her. Uh, she showed up at his apartment that night knocking on the door. That's the only reason, because she saw a sucker. That's right. Yeah, she knew she had, a, she had her foot in the door. Yep. And it's just interesting. Uh, I, like I said, I just haven't seen him play the nice guy. I'm curious to see what the other side of that situation is. And to your point, Barbara Stanwyck is a bit of a risk for her. She was the highest paid actress in Hollywood at the time. A huge star. Yeah, she had already received uh, two Oscar nominations in the like three years before the, or uh, seven years before this. Is this your favorite performance of hers? You said this is your favorite actress. Mm, no, completely different movie. Christmas in Connecticut. Have you ever seen that one? We should. We should. I have not. No, but it no. sounds lovely. <laughs> it sounds really nice. Uh, set at Christmas time. It's beautiful. And that's one reason she's my favorite actress is because she can go from film noir to romantic comedy. She did westerns. She did thrillers. She did slapstick comedy. She, she musical stuff. She did it all. Oh, interesting. My dad said that, actually. I pulled up his text message. It's actually a lot shorter than I thought it was, if you want me to read it real quick. He says, uh, great movie, an absolute film noir classic. I watched it several times. One interesting twist is that Fred McMurray is the bad guy, but he was more frequently cast as the good guy, like we've already said, and went on to star in TV classics My Three Sons, where he played a sort of perfect dad. Edward G. Robinson, one of the classic gangster bad guys, was nearing the end of his career and plays a good guy. Barbara Stanwyck was a very versatile actress. I cannot wait to hear. It's interesting you mentioned, so keys. Edward G. Robinson. Yes. He... Didn't want to take this because he wasn't billed very highly, but he he ate a little bit of humble pie and uh, he was demoted to third build. But the it was a transitional phase for him in his career. It helped that he was getting paid the same amount as these other two for doing less work. So that always helps. Money helps smooth things over. It always does. So let's talk about the difference in the book and the movie since you read the book, Tim. This is a this is a treat. I love it when people have that ability to go go to here. So this is based on a book. Double Indemnity by James M. Kane. He's a big time figure in U.S. crime writing, you know, in terms of liter- literature. So this novella, it's not a big, it's not, this is not fine literature. This was kind of, <laughs> some people thought it was a trashy novel uh, full of, you know, dirty, dirty sex and violence and just, this is sleazy stuff here uh, that we're bringing to the big screen. So uh, how do we take this pulp, as it's called, like they made these like crime magazines, like term pulp fiction. Not the movie, but like it goes back to publications that would take this world of crime and the underbelly of all this stuff. Why is America ready for this? What? what why did we need this, Tim? I think it, it it has a lot to do with the anxiety uh, after the First World War and then leading up into the Second World War. A lot, as you were saying before, a lot of women started to work outside the home because the men were on the on the war front, and societal roles were changing. And I think a lot of that's reflected in here. I mean, Phyllis is just a little housewife, if you think about it. She doesn't have a job. She used to be a nurse, but she gave that up when she got married. So it, it, it has a lot to do with society at that time, I think. So the book, as I understand it, there's some major differences. One, the plot is not the plot's very straightforward and it's not told through a series of flashbacks. And that was something that the screenwriters, Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler employed. What a good move that was. How was it 
change the experience. Let, let me just ask right away. What do you like better, the book or the movie? The movie, just because, you know, I've loved it forever. Uh, I really enjoyed reading the book, though. Uh, it was really well done. I've noticed in the uh, there's a lot of the uh, scenes with uh, Neff and Phyllis in the movie were not in the book. He didn't really flesh out their their the romantic part of their of their deal very much. So I think that was mostly the, the screenwriters that did that. There was uh, quite a bit of Barton Keys in the book. He actually ended up a very different character at the end of that. I, I really saw that. I did not see that coming. So uh, it, it was it was definitely worth a good read. I enjoyed it. So they added some more sizzle and they added a little more heart with some keys, more keys moments there. So yeah. Yeah, and the other thing um, uh, that I really uh, appreciated, I don't know if you remember, but there's one scene where Barton Key shows up at Neff's apartment as Phyllis is on the way there, and she has to hide out in the hallway and hide by the door and all that. I just thought that was a beautifully set up shot, and, and the way it was choreographed and photographed and everything was really cool. And that's not in the book at all. They completely made that up for the movie. Now, you mentioned endings. We have a difference in the book and in the movie, correct? That's correct. Yeah. In the book, I can say it's safe to say that would never have gone through the Hayes Code uh, approval because basically the murderers got away with it. Or did they? <laughs> There's a little question mark at the end of the book. Uh, we, we, we can probably spoil the book a, t- a tad bit. I, I won't feel as guilty. <laughs> Spoiling a movie is high offense for me, but a, a book is another yeah. level of effort to get to. So we're going to spell it out for people in this one. There's a double suicide in the book, correct? Yeah, exactly. And I think the, the, the other part that was really interesting to me, Keyes actually helped them escape because he and the, the insurance company didn't want the bad publicity of having one of their agents being involved in this oh, murder. Oh, that's good. I kind of like that, though. Yeah, he actually helped them escape. He got the money. He got them on, a, on the same boat to South America. And that's on the boat when they realized that they were both on the same trip to Nova. They ended up decided to kill each other. I could totally see Keys doing that, though. Like, he loves Walter so much. I figured it out. I'm really disappointed in you, but I have this, like, genuine affection for you. I'm still going to help you get out of this, even though what you did is terribly wrong. Like, that is so Keys to me. That makes total sense. Gosh. There's that great line. And when, you know, it's the movie's just about over and he's like, you know, you didn't see it because it was too close. It was right across from your desk. And he's like, closer than that. And Neff goes, I love you too. And I like that too. It's like such a great line and really, really heartbreaking because you just, you realize that he's, the, the, you use the perfect word. It's like just complete and utter disappointment of like, I, love you so much as a person and I just cannot believe that you would have done something like this and there's so many layers and nuances because he was lying to him the whole time and just all the things but yeah I like the idea of of him letting him go but the the double suicide oh my gosh and it was just all for nothing poor keys he's just left i don't like the double suicide but i do like the fact that keys let them go like yeah yeah i like the keys let him go but I uh, I just feel bad for him. He's the only one with any moral fiber in this entire story. And oh, he's exuding it. He has enough. He has enough fiber for everybody. He's he's yeah, a bowl I of fiber. One him. moral fiber. That's right. I I really I love his character. He's so fun to watch. He's the absolutely magnetic, and you 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 root for that little man inside. Yeah, and and Phyllis is more deadly. If I'm not mistaken in the book, I read that she's responsible for eight patients deaths as well as as a nurse. So she's pretty devious in the book. And uh, it reaffirms her in the book. 
I, I guess there's a quote, uh, there's something in me that loves death. I like to think of myself as death sometimes in a scarlet shroud floating through the night. It's so beautiful, Ben. So she's a little more twisted in the book. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I find it more interesting what they did in the movie, though. Like, that's, that's hitting me across the face with it. Like, you know, I don't know. You can be as pretty as Barbara Stanwyck, Ava Gardner, or whatever. But once you tell me, it's like, I like to think of myself as death. There's a red flag, and then there's, like, a giant red flag. <laughs> like, Here's so. the bouquet of them. Yeah, do what you will. You mentioned earlier, Tim, that she had given up nursing to get married. I wonder, do we think that she gave up nursing in order to get married, or do you think that she got married so she could give up nursing? Because she... No, she, uh, she used her nursing to kill Lola's yes. mom, for sure. Yeah, it was, like, all part of a big... Big ploy. That's when Walter realizes, uh oh, this is worse than I thought. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. There's also a one point in there where she says, he had money when I married him. I remember he lost it in, in those investments. Yeah. So she married him for the money, I'm sure of it, and killed, killed his first wife for the money. Oh, that's a good point. She's disappointed by that. Yeah, for sure. She also supposedly killed Nino Zacchetti's father in the, in the novel, too. That's why Ooh. Nino, yeah, in the novel, Nina was tracking her down to try to prove that she had killed him. So ah. in the movie here, though, Lola's character is really important. Lola's character is where you see how deeply bad Phyllis's character is. This is where Walter starts to feel regret. Like, uh-oh, I've made bad decisions here. And even though he's shot and he's going to die, he doesn't make a run for Mexico necessarily. He just goes in on dictaphone and reads it, which that's a wild looking device in today's times. But, and he unleashes what has to be several rolls of tape because it's a long explanation. And it's interesting, though, that it's because of Lola that he feels the guilt. Oh, I shouldn't have killed this guy. Oh, I totally, I knew she was a little bit thrilling and she's the bad girl and I like that. But this isn't just a bad girl. I mean, she killed this nice girl's mother. Like, she, inv she invaded this guy and, like, like, she preyed upon him. Like, and yes, she probably had to do with his money spending. She said she had no freedom. But she can just go to the market any old time to meet him anytime she needs to. She's not under his thumb. The dude travels all the time. He might be slightly uninvested and older and disinterested in her because he's older and, like, there's an age gap here. But, I mean, she signed up for this. And, you know, she claims that she won't divorce her. But I'm starting to believe that nothing she says is true. And she's just, you know, morals out the window. And anything that, like you said, Lizzie, she's out to serve herself. She's okay with having some fun along the way. They probably had more sex than they implied in this movie. I was shocked how little they implied that, like, to keep Walter going. You have to assume that happened along the way. But I just, this whole world that he's, the fact that he's guilty was another nuance. The fact that he felt genuine guilt through Lola's character and the growing remorse that he did what he did, I think that was really good. I appreciated that more in my second viewing. Yes. I don't think it would have been quite as an enjoyable movie. I mean, it's fun to watch depro deplorable people to a point. And then if you're like, there's, you have no redemption inside of you, then at that point, I'm almost just kind of disgusted and I don't really want to watch. I mean, there has to be either there's some kind of redemption arc for you or you get your comeuppance. Like the idea of watching a movie where... I'm just watching a completely apathetic, evil person just consistently get away with evil. Like, that's just not intriguing to me at all. And it's going to leave me just feeling hopeless and sad. So I think, 
you know, it's fun to see the spectrum because, you know, Phyllis gets her comeuppance and Walter ends up feeling that guilt. And even though he still gets caught, there is that character arc of him finally kind of coming out of Phyllis's fog. Now, Tim, have you read about the wild interactions between the screenwriters themselves? This is a tumultuous process between Raymond Chandler, who was selected because his, his style is similar to James M. Cain's. Billy Wilder usually would use Charles Brackett, but Charles Brackett, like some of these actors, said, I don't want to touch this, this trash. Like, this is trashy. <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to be associated with that. I, you know? And so Raymond Chandler agreed to do it, even though he called it gutter trash himself. So, but I'll do it. <laughs> um, so they did not get along very well together and it seemed like it was just personality more than anything else because it seems like they worked beautifully together from from final outcome but evidently Raymond Chandler didn't like that Billy Wilder never took his hat off indoors just little things like that <laughs> somebody gets on your nerves a co-worker gets on your nerves yeah I think Billy was frustrated with Raymond sounds like he was struggling with alcoholism at the time <laughs> you know there's an unprofessionality that would grate Billy but then he would grate on Raymond back. So, you know, initially Chandler was really happy. He wanted to get at least $150 a week, which was a lot. And they gave him $750 a week for eight weeks, which was not only uncommon for a writer at the time, but significantly high to keep him on board and to keep him involved in the process. So initially things looked good and they intended to retain as much of the book as possible. But Chandler didn't want to do that. He wanted to diverge more from that, which from what I can tell, that was a good move. And I think, as you said, Tim, they made the right moves together in the end. It doesn't show in the final product, but Wilder realized that Chandler was right about that and kind of gave in. But at one point, Chandler just walks off the film. He just doesn't show up to work one day. And Billy Wilder goes over there and figures like, hey, what? why are you not showing up to work with the producer? And Raymond unleashes a round of, like you said, dramatic things of like, you know, you're always going out of the room and having phone calls with ladies and you're always, uh, you wear your hat indoors and, and I don't like this about you. And, you know, I don't like how you chew your food and like just a whole lit line of litany. And shockingly, Billy Wilder, big, big name, had to eat some crow and a little bit of humble pie and say, yeah, I'm sorry. And try and meet his list of demands in order to get him to come back in. This is a screenwriter. If you don't get along with the producer and the director, hit the road. I, I, I can find five more of you. I find it really interesting that Raymond Chandler could push his weight around like this, don't you? Yeah. I think it just speaks to how, how popular he was and how, how great he was at, at that detective fiction. Few people did it better. And Billy did antagonize him, too. You know, he would get frustrated with his unprofessionalism, but then he would be unprofessional back by talking about his womanizing and, you know, saying that. Chandler was sexually repressed, which I'm not, I'm not sure I'd even get that comment. He would have been married. His wife was uncommon. She left a man who she was married with prior to be with Raymond Chandler, and she was 18 years older than him. So this is a little unconventional at the time when he was only like in his like young 20s. So that might have been a little risque for the time. But I still don't get this. Uh, again, Billy would lay it on with him with that and antagonize him too. So Billy does seem like an aggressive character, and we covered him in Some Like It Hot. And if you go back and listen to that episode, there's some of his relationship. Marilyn went through a very hard time in making Some Like It Hot, and yep. he was not exactly a very empathetic character. Now, she was hard to work with, she, you know, but there wasn't a lot of compassion for somebody who was clearly 
coming off the rails, and unfortunately, she met an end of her life very soon, uh, way too soon, and tragically too soon. You know, you see Billy trying to make a movie, not seeing all the struggle and strife that's within the person, and um, I think it's shocking how much of that story between Marilyn and him, the conflict that they had, I mean, it was very ugly. You can go back and listen to our episode on that. I want to turn it into the Some Like It Hot episode, but I see a lot of that here with the conflict because there's a lot of story. We're only getting the tip of the iceberg, but a lot of the stories behind this movie are the battles between these screenwriters. So some juicy stuff there. Lizzie, do you like Billy's work here as a director? I mean, it's hard to believe this is the same guy who did Some Like It Hot, but it is. Yeah, I mean, I think so much of the style and just that general thickness in the air that we spoke about, I. I have to imagine so much of it was really intentional. And so I think that I really appreciate his attention to detail in that way. And I like that story too, because, you know, in all honesty, I think looking in, you know, today's society, directors are kind of like the peak top dogs of movies. So, you know, regardless of how his tactics might have been to have him be self-aware at the end of the day and kind of humble himself is, is definitely really cool. But I think what makes this movie so enjoyable just to watch is that there's a theatricality to it that I know is absolutely due to just the amazing actors and and of course but I think also just the style of being like so close up in their faces and just really being able to feel like you're very present in the moment so I really do appreciate Billy's style and just being so intentional and making you really connect with these characters and connect with the scenery around you. I'm with you. Billy understands the importance of character. That's one thing that Some Like It Hot does. It's funny, but these characters, you get a feel for. Like, it's funnier because you you understand each of the characters. They have established motivations. They're in a ridiculous situation, but he takes care of character construction. This is no different. It's tension instead of comedy. It's suspense. And he builds it just as well as he does because he takes care of character. And he builds those characters and the situations quite well. We covered another Raymond Chandler project, which was uh, The Long Goodbye, and I think this is so much more tense. This is so much more fast-moving, and to Tim's point, it doesn't feel like there's extraneous stuff in here. It moves right along, and because of that, even when I'm watching this 80 years later, I feel like I'm strapped in on a roller coaster, and I'm just like, you know, my eyebrows are going up like, whoa, there's another turn? You know, <laughs> or like when she's in the hallway and like she could get caught and keys is right there and she doesn't know that she's there. I, you know, I'm pretty tense in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you really could pluck this in today's society, like when they're on the phone with each other. And I'm probably going to get this wrong, but he calls her from a pay phone and he's like, I've got your I think it's a, like a grocery order asking if he's going to pick up her order. And at this point, like, you know, that there's heat on them. And so like that whole conversation, like there is just such tension that you really could pluck it into a a movie in modern day and it would be just as exciting. The only difference that makes it work so well is that if this movie were today, it would be an hour longer and just filled with all different kinds of pickup fluff scenes to try to just make the story seem more exciting. And I'm so glad that that was not the case in this movie. I completely agree with you, Tamara. It just feels like every single scene, every single dialogue, it just felt so intentional. And by the end of the movie, you feel fully satisfied. No stone was left unturned, but they really maximized the amount of time that they had. It was perfect. Yeah. 
Roger Ebert said Billy Wilder does not go for an obvious story arc. He's interested in the same things that the characters are interested in. He wants to show what happens to them after they do what they think is so important and that he doesn't want the truth, but the consequences of those actions. Obviously, Roger Ebert knows what he's talking about much of the time. That is a very well put thing, and I totally see that in these characters. Tim, Billy Wilder is a big name in the directing world. This is only his third or fourth movie. I mean, this is pretty impressive work early in his career. Yeah, yeah. He went on, uh, I, I was looking it up earlier, he went on to win six Oscars total with 21 nominations. Wow, that's, that's insane. That's killing it. And the other statistic I saw, he's only one of five people who have won for best movie, best director, and best screenplay. And that was for The Apartment in 1960. Yeah, he's on fire. I mean, The Lost Weekend, Sunset Boulevard, Sabrina, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment. I mean, mind you, these are two generations older, and we still know the names of these movies. And I'm sure some of the movies that hit in between and stuff like that, that are along the way. I'm assuming the quality's there throughout as well. Like you said, there's nominations galore. So much so that he's tripping people and walking out yelling about like why he didn't get his Oscar. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not going to say he, he was a, a bit of a jerk. He could definitely be a bit of I a jerk. I see that. But also a genius in writing and, and directing. So. Why is a culture to be like brilliant jerks so much? I don't know. Like, I, I, it's one of those questions I ask myself. Like, you know, why, why do we like to watch like the movie Whiplash? And like, why is it fun to watch J.K. Simmons literally abusing people and yelling at people and because he's really good and brings out the best of them or something? Why is Bobby Knight such an interesting character in sports? Like Steve Jobs. Like, I don't know why we were so attracted to brilliant jerks, but we are. I think there's something about the confidence that it is required to be able to say that from the outside looking in like a Steve Jobs for example like we recognize regardless of how you feel about him in Apple and all that but I mean there's no denying the fact that there's a level of genius there to him and so I think that you know we see that but then to hear him get up on stage and be like yeah I know like I'm I am a genius. I think that there's a part of it that I admire in the sense that like there's that confidence. So I think we're attracted to that level of confidence. But I think that there's also this like we love to hate them also because I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think there's nothing more attractive than humility. And so it's as interesting and intriguing as it is to see somebody that just is like, yeah, I'm like, you think I'm cool. Like I do too. Like it's, it's great. There's nothing sexier than humility. So I think there's also like a love to hate it kind of thing. Well, Billy, even in the marketing for this came out. So in 44, the same year that it came out, Since You Went Away, as I mentioned, came out. And part of the campaign for that was Since You Went Away would say, these are the four most important words in film since Gone with the Wind. And <laughs> so David Oselstyk had produced that movie and Billy Wilder hated the ads and, you know, didn't like Selznick. And, you know, he put out an ad in Double Indemnity and he would say the two most important words since Broken Blossoms, which would refer to the 1919's even older movie, which I'm not sure that holds up today as well, but it did at the time. And uh, Alfred Hitchcock, who also hated Selznick, would add on to it. He took out his own ads that said the two most important words in movie today are Billy Wilder. So big names like Hitchcock and Wilder, big egos. You know, when you're that good, it's funny that you have to be petty, but he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. John Stees is the guy who does the, the cinematography on this. He's the cinematographer on this. So he'd worked with Billy Wilder in previous films. And I don't want to discredit him. He takes these bright, sunny 
California exteriors and shots and somehow the gloomy interiors and these grungy worlds and he gives it the feel of this and light coming in through Venetian blinds. Billy Wilder said I didn't set out to make a noir movie. I was just making a movie. And later they called it noir. I really love how Tim said like he brought his what he knew from Italian realism film and from German expressionism and converted it in Hollywood and you have electricity. I just that's so cool when you see somebody not just let's do that thing. It's so organically there that it becomes a thing. There's something really special about all that. Did you like the LA setting, Tim? Oh yeah. I'm a big fan of music from the 40s and 50s. And so post-war LA really appeals to me. It was really cool seeing that. I just wanted to mention, if anybody's interested in this movie, the house that uh, the Dietersons lived in is still standing. And you can, you can go by and, and take oh. it out, take pictures of it and stuff. They've remodeled like the garage part, but otherwise it looks exactly like it did in the movie uh, almost 80 years ago. Uh, cool. I did Google Earth it and dropped a guy in there, and I, uh, I, I got distracted. There's a really modern house across the street from it that's cut into the hill, so I was distracted by the architecture I can across the street. But, but to your point, Ray, Raymond Chandler did field work. Like he, he took notes. Like these are actually places in LA. The, the apartment building that uh, Walter Neff lives in also still exists, less of a destination, if you will. But they are 2.1 miles apart. Like that's a walk that he actually could make between there. There's a certain streets that are in there like with the the market and so these things were very contextual and raymond chandler cared about capturing all that and he wrote that into the screenplay so uh these are contributions that raymond chandler made that i have to say i don't know if it's because so many detective stories whether it be like la confidential mulholland drive or things like that that have come up in la but i don't know why i find like maybe it's the scumminess of hollywood that 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 makes you believe that underneath this sunny world that it's all warm that there's this dark underbelly of coldness but i don't know why i feel like la is just such a place for this to be i don't know it's a juxtaposition of what the environment is as to what's going on with the characters well you know the original story was based on a murder case that was in new york so that's one of the things that Kane changed he covered the murder case it was in 1925 27 something like that and that's where he came up with the story of the wife getting her boyfriend to kill the husband because it was based on a real life story in that story uh that couple uh gave each other up within like 24 hours it did not last long <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> <laughs> i read something on this so the woman who did this in real life went and got the electric chair this is a big deal someone took a photo of her being executed and so like this is like in the historical archives or whatever so you can you can read um gosh do you remember the name of the couple by chance mm, i think snyder's the last name but i'm sorry i don't remember ruth snyder yep and she was electrocuted at sing sing prison with a secret camera so james kane would have been on that jury that gave him some ideas for this story so based in real life kind of if you want more dorky architectural notes Doors don't swing out into hallways. They didn't back then either. So they rigged the door up to let Barbara Stanwyck hide behind the door for keys because she needed something to hide behind. It works really well. Doors don't do that. So, Lizzie, did you like the wardrobe we have here? Yeah, I think the wardrobe was good, but I have to be totally honest. I don't think that there was anything in particular that stood out to me about the wardrobe. I think it was very of the, of the time. But there wasn't a specific piece. You know, when we watched The Killers, there was Ava Gardner's, like, very tight. But we, we were, I think, speculating at the time if it was black or red. Uh, her dress, you know, that typical femme fatale dress. There wasn't anything that really stuck out to me. 
in the wardrobe, but I'm actually really okay with that. I don't think that the movie really needed to have any kind of big statement piece. I think that the character development was really so strong, and I honestly think that kind of the dark clothes that blended in really almost yielded itself to just allowing kind of the just general noir darkness to just have louder a louder presence. Interesting. I, I felt like uh, Keys, like they they talked about how informal he was and how unstrung he was. It's a very formal movie. You can see him seeming like a sweaty guy, like walking around like with his suspenders, <laughs> like not giving a crap about what people think about his view. So I think that was that came across in his character. And Phyllis, I thought she had a lot of good piece wardrobe pieces. I don't know. What do you think about the wardrobe here? In, I've always loved it. I'm a gay man, so wardrobe is right up my alley. <laughs> Edith Head did uh, fantastic. Edith Head did the costumes for this. She did a lot of Barbara Stanwyck movies. One of the costumes have you have you guys seen uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid with Steve Martin? I need to. It's a, yeah, I, no. I have not. No. Yeah, uh, that costume uh, that she wears when the first time they're in the the grocery store together, when Wal- Walter and Phyllis meet up in the grocery store, is in that movie. Basically, Steve Martin is wearing it in that movie. It, it's really cool connection. But to me, in terms of wardrobe and costuming and everything, it's got to be Phyllis's wig, that cheap, ugly wig that she's got on. <laughs> I think it's meant to imply that she's not a very classy person. And evidently, Billy Wilder hated the wig after a few weeks, but he had already spent so much money and had so much film in the can, he, he couldn't go back and, and refilm it. But he ended up uh, eventually hating the wig and then loving it because everybody thought it was so out of character for her. I think it's just steering into the curve at that point. But I also thought I did find myself looking at her hair going like, I don't like this haircut for her. And I didn't realize it was a wig right away. But then, like you said, when I was like, ah, yes, of course, it's a wig. And yeah, it didn't it did distract me. But I thought the fact that when you first meet her, she's in a towel. She's up on a balcony. She has all the control in that situation. And that is a dynamic of what their relationship will be. Walter's looking up at her very enthusiastically. She's she's not afraid to show off what she's got to a stranger. So there's this confidence in her that, you know, this is what will draw Walter into his demise. Beyond that, I thought, you know, she's deceptively, she's got like this nice floral outfit on that and the nice skirt too when he comes to visit her. And she's like, would you like some tea? And she is done up. Like, she's not just having a day at home as a housewife here. Like, this isn't a, I've been traipsing about town. She knows what she's doing. And there's another scene where she goes over to Walter's, and she's conveying vulnerability, and she's putting on a more of a sweeter act. And so she's got, like, this kind of, like, sweater and, like, you know, kind of, like, there's a pencil skirt that's more receptive, sorry, more respectable, more innocent in her. She's trying to portray this character, like, I need a man to help me out here, which... Mm-hmm. you know makes walter like sucked in more so it's interesting in each one of these scenes she's wearing different stuff and she is doing exactly what she wants to do through her wardrobe too when she's uh, when she's going in as a widow like she's too good and keys picks up on it she's playing the part too well and that is carried through with that and the best one i thought is she's got like this over the top glamorous look at the end like the silk top and bottom She's rotten. And, you know, she's sitting there. She's been having these big pieces of jewelry, which I think are gaudy by today's standards. I think they were then, too. She's got this very white silk thing. White doesn't mean innocence for her. She wears it multiple times in this movie. But there's a coolness uh, and detachment in it. And I like the wardrobe here. Edith Head is a name I will probably keep an eye on, as you mentioned, Tim. 
so good. So good for Phyllis. The men's roles, not as much, but they, you know, this is the number eight villain of all time. She had number eight villainry wardrobe, I think. Like, it's subtle. But the more you look into it, the more you sit there and go like, ah, they nailed this. They nailed this. I'll have to give that a second watch. I feel like with black and white movies, I hardly ever really pay attention to their wardrobe. But I do have to imagine when she came out in that towel that that was probably like a huge jaw dropper at the time. Yeah. And that everybody should have known right then and there. Yeah. With that camera angle highlighting her legs and the anklet. That's right. Yes, yes. And if only we knew what the anklet meant. I'll never forget that. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about the music here, Tim? Miklos Rosa did the score here, whose work on Wilder's previous film, Five Graves to Cairo. What do you think about his work here? It's big. Music back then is big. Yeah, I think the the word that was used earlier was ominous from the very beginning. Those those really deep strings and and that orchestral movement it reminded me a lot of Hitchcock's work with Bernard Herrmann later in in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. That's a good name to be associated with too. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I I love how music and these older movies they really tell you how you're supposed to be feeling you know it's like okay in this moment we're this is thrilling so we're gonna be like we're gonna up the the tempo and do like the lower baritone sounds i just always love that the music is almost like a a narration so to speak of of what's going on and this movie's no different they did great this is another one of the brilliant jerk moments so billy wilder loved rose's score but the studio director lewis lipstone did not like it and they clashed on the prior movie and it had happened there too so they were at each other's throats beforehand. They didn't like each other going into this one. And Lipstone made no secret. He, he despised Rosa, what Rosa had done. And Wilder finally turned to him and snapped, You may be surprised to hear it, but I love it, okay? And then Lipstone disappeared and was not seen in sessions again. And he later summoned Rosa to his office and then yelled at him, saying, This Carnegie Music Hall writing has no place in the film here. And Rosa took this as a compliment because it's like, he's like, Okay, okay, you have bad taste. Good deal. Okay, thanks. You know, <laughs> um, and then Lipstone went further. It's like, I assure you, it's not a compliment. <laughs> so it's funny to see Billy Wilder stand up for the music that he liked. And it was nominated for an Academy Award. We like brilliant jerks because they stand up and point out other people's incompetence sometimes. Like Gordon Ramsay will come into a kitchen that's not being run well and then yell at everybody. And you're like, yeah, it shouldn't be done that way. Uh, it seems obvious now. So sometimes we find reward in that. So. You got it right here. You guys want to hand out some awards? Yes, let's do it. Tim, who is the MVP of Dumble Indemnity? I am going to have to cheat. I'm going to have to do a tie between Wilder and Stanwyck. I think they both contributed so much. I, I can't uh, favor one over the other. Those are good choices. Did you pick one of these two, Lizzie? I didn't. No, I went with Eric G. Robertson, Keys. I find him to be the most fun to watch. And again, he's the only one with any moral fiber. And he just does such a wonderful job. That monologue that he gives their boss about, you know, he's like, you know, you just want to be able to claim suicides. You don't have to pay the money. And he's got such conviction. And honestly, really without him, this plot doesn't unfold. You know, they just get away with it. And it's, you know, without keys, you really don't have quite of a compelling movie. So he's my MVP. I went with Billy Wilder on this one because of the amount of just nailing everything for a typology that will come. I've credited a lot of that to Billy for bringing over these European influences to American cinema, which will develop an entire genre. So he's my choice. And by the way, we haven't said this. This movie's about insurance claims and salesmen. Like, this is boring stuff. And like, they, like, they, they turn the world of insurance 
into something really exciting. That's hard to do. They do it in the killers too. I don't know what it was about interns that was so exciting to everybody. You're, you're right. If I had watched this movie as like a young person in the 40s, I'd been like, I got to be an insurance salesman. This, right, this looks fun. <laughs> Flo is not up to the same nonsense that they're into. No, no. Flo does not have this game. So, uh, Tim, how about you? Best supporting? Uh, I would have to go with Robert Robinson as Keys. Yeah, it's a great choice. Lizzie? I went with. Fred McMurray plays Walter Neff. I just, I think he was charming to watch. I really enjoyed watching him and I really like his overall arc. And I think he does a really good job of just honestly, just kind of playing a stupid guy, like really, really well. Because eventually he just, he realizes it. He's like, I've stepped in it. Like I've made this huge mistake and I didn't even get anything out of it, you know? So I, I appreciate the self-awareness at the very end. I think he just, he does a really good job at that. I really appreciate you, Lizzie, coming on here and pointing out how stupid men are. So thank you. I, mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 I think we did it in the killers where you're like, I think you, I, I think you pointed out, I was like, no, this is, this is, this person's terrible. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> have you seen Ava Gardner? I mean, she's, I mean, it's a bad idea, but I mean, she's really pretty. So, so like, yeah, so, like you're gorgeous. We're not worth dying for. Yeah. <laughs> we're getting in the electric chair. So, okay, so how many bad things do we need to do again? Because this could still work, right? So, uh huh. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I get where you're coming from on that one. I went with Edward G. Robinson too, is why, why you guys both love him. I also love this movie. Gets its heart from him. That little man inside works for me. Right. Hidden gem, Tim. I've got to go with that wig. <laughs> really? Do you like the wig? Because I actually would like to change the wig. No, I don't think she's the same character with good hair. Okay. Okay. So, so okay. So you're you're buying into the this has to be a sleazy wig. Yep. yep. I'm glad Edith Head didn't dive into the wardrobe as sleazy for her as the wig was. Exactly. You know, she understood that she had to have some desire, some mystery, some control, some power in her wardrobe, and her wardrobe did that. Exactly. She balanced it out. Without Edith Head, that wig is going to be a harder problem. So. Lizzie and Jim. So I went with the fact that Walter, when he's in the very beginning, when he's talking about going to the Diedrichsen house and he describes the house itself, he mentions that this gigantic LA mansion costs $30,000. <laughs> I just was like, what? <laughs> I understand this is the 40s, but. I'm going to put a high bid in. 40,000, yeah. I'm willing to waive inspections. Right, yeah, exactly. I'm just like, man, <laughs> inflation really got us. <laughs> so, it did. Uh, yeah, that made me laugh. All right. My hidden gem is Raymond Chandler. The man outside reading the magazine in Key's office is Raymond Chandler himself in the movie, which I love it when directors and people like that get in their own movies. So that's fun. Recast, if you had to recast somebody, Tim. I would replace the fine actor who played uh, Mr. Dietrichson with a character actor named Thomas Mitchell. If you saw It's a Wonderful Life, he was Uncle Billy in It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Gone with the Wind, he was Scarlett O'Hara's father. Uh, and I, th I think he would have been a perfect Dietrichson. It he would have added another label to it. I like that. I, don't, I think Dietrichson's character, I guess he's ambiguous. You're not trying to get attached to him because you're supposed to not like him at the time before you kill him and then have regret about it later. But I still like this pick. I think that's a good opportunity for some improvement. How about you, yeah. Lizzie? So I chose just a really tiny part. The um, I don't even remember the character's name, but it's Keys's boss. You just you see him for just that one short little moment, 
And I would have thought it would have been fun to see a familiar face in there. So I put Jimmy Stewart. I just, I love him so much. And I feel like he's got some good range to him. And he honestly doesn't say much. But he has such a recognizable face. So having a cameo as that character, I think would have been super fun just to, like a cool call out to, you know, one of my favorite old actors. I'm going to piggyback on this because I also went after Richard Gaines, who plays Mr. Norton, the insurance uh, boss. There we go. Yes. Um, He's too funny. He's too goofy. He's too incompetent. Like he's heartless. Yes. And like, you know, like you said, I, I like that he's just pushing up against him, but I want somebody a little more firm. And I went with Conrad Beek. He's from Casablanca's Major Strasser. So that's, nice. so, so that's who I'm going with here. So I want a little more, I want a little more like I'm the boss around here kind of vibe. Yeah, that would work. I get it. Best shot, Tim. For me, it's the murder scene when Fred McMurray leans over, strangles the guy, breaks his neck, whatever's going on. And Billy Wilder just goes in a close up, tight close up of Phyllis's face. And there's no emotion on her face whatsoever. She, she's finally getting what she wants and she's, she couldn't be happier. It's a good choice. Lizzie, there's a lot of good shots in this movie, by the way. What's your best shot? There's a lot. You know, I actually put the opening sequence, just that still of the man on the crutches, just slowly coming towards, just because to me, I, as someone who had no idea what was about to happen, I just, that felt really thrilling to me. And then that just still of this man on the crutches, especially from that shot of it being almost at floor level. So you're really looking up at him. I, I just, I really piqued my interest. It's a great choice. My best shot. I, I, and it's not just because she's beautiful. It's the bath towel railing shot when we first meet Phyllis. Because it's that power dynamic that's going to set up everything before them. I kind of mentioned this earlier. Like She is in control, and we see that he wants her, and we see that she, she knows he wants her right away. Like you said, I think you're putty, and I can mold you. That shot, that angle, it does all of that. And I noticed one other thing about that shot the other night when I saw it again for the first time in a few years. At the very beginning of that shot, she kind of shies away from the edge of the railing and kind of stands behind something until she gets a good check out on him. To say, yeah, this guy, I could, I, could, I could use this guy. And then she moves very slowly up to the front of the railing. Ooh, and the mm-hmm. It was very subtle between Stanwick and, and, and Wilder. I don't know who came up with it, but it was really cool. cool. Good line, too. I wanted to see her without that stupid railing between us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Best scene, Tim. It definitely uh, is when they're flirting. They're very flirt. The first flirtation where she says, you know, there's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. Uh, all that dialogue just just really uh, makes me happy. <laughs> just so cool. Yes. There's a toughness in her flirting that uh, is, mm-hmm. uh, it is very entertaining to watch. Lizzie, best scene. So I put the very end scene between Keys and Walter because so throughout the whole movie, there seems to be this dynamic between Keys and Walter where, you know, even though Keyes is the good guy, he has this kind of fiery anxiousness to him at all times where he's, he gets really wound up very easily. And it's Walter that is, you know, even though he's the villain, so to speak, in this movie, you know, he is fairly even keeled. And so when whenever Keyes is putting a cigarette in his mouth and he can't light it and he's just like fiddling with, with trying to get the match, Walter's super cool, calm and collected and is able to light that match for him. And then at the end... When this scene's happening, you know, Walter's all washed up. He's laying down, or excuse me, sitting down. 
And now he's the one fiddling with his cigarette, trying to get it to work. And Walter is the one that's fiddling with his cigarette. And Keyes is the one that's calmly lighting for him. So it's just this really subtle shift in power dynamics between the two of them. And I just, I thought it was kind of like the poetic justice, so to speak, kind of coming to fruition for them. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned the I got to smoke as I'm dying thing. We haven't talked about it. I have to say it every time we cover a 40s movie. People liked their cigarettes back then, and the yeah, cigarette ads were sponsoring themselves to project themselves as what they were doing. And there is a ton of smoking all over this thing. So, and, that, yeah. and nothing more like, I'm dying. One last pleasant, smooth joy. Like, <laughs> like I mean, like, it's like, it's like, man, the tobacco lobby was hard in Hollywood. Everything. Although I have heard Ebert come back and say, cigarettes, which he detested, he said, are good in in cinema because it gives people personality how they hold their cigarettes and the way that they blow their smoke gives them a lot of opportunities to express themselves that are pretty hard to replace so he would say that hats and cigarettes are enormous opportunities with how they are positioned and how they are used and held are conveyed in their characters so but still don't smoke he said so my best scene is going to be carrying out the murder He's in the back of the car. She sees him. She throws the coats in there. And we, we're off to the train station. It's very exciting. We even have this guy kind of almost ruining the whole thing by being back there. <laughs> like, he's like, ah, uh, go away, please. <laughs> and like, <laughs> stop talking to me. And so that was a very fun scene, this tense moment. And it is really culminated when the car doesn't start. I was like, yes. oh, this is not a good time for your car to not break. Like, you just dropped a body, and, and your car is in eyesight of it, and it breaks down. Uh, what a tense moment. So we talked about this pretty extensively, but Tam, best wardrobe or makeup moment for you? Is it the wig? Uh, I would go with the, the, the wig, the towel, and the anklet yep, after the sunbathing. All right. And Lizzie? You know, I put the matches. I know, like, it's technically a prop, but I really liked how the matches were able to speak so loudly throughout the movie. I'm going to go with Phyllis is in the grocery store. She's got, like, this high, high-waisted black pants, and then she's got, like, this flowy white top, and she's got these glasses on and super pristine, like, lipstick, and they shoot her facing away from Neff, talking to her, and there's this coldness in her. She's so precise in her wardrobe. There's this distance in her. And I think that's where we see some of the uh, danger. And he's even like, we're not going to do this. And she's like, yeah, yeah, we are going to do that. We sure as heck are going to do this. And that coldness is in that moment. So you can Google it. Like if you just search double indemnity, it's one of these things that comes up and it's a good moment for wardrobe. Like there's a coldness that comes across for her perfectly. Change one thing, Tim. I would agree with both of you guys uh, when you talked about uh, the insurance boss, Norton. To me, that was the weakest performance in the movie. So I would prefer to see almost anybody else do that. Okay. And Lizzie, change one thing. You know, I wouldn't have Phyllis soften up at the very end. I'm sure that there was some kind of motive for that. But because we didn't get to see what it was, I would have rather she stayed kind of in that original place. You know, because she shoots him and then... He's like, come on, like, get closer, like, finish me off. And she's like, you know, I've never loved anybody and I've never been able to, you know, I've, I've never been afraid of, of doing something like that until now. Just hold me. And in my mind, I'm like, where is this going right now? Is she about to shoot him? And before you can figure out where she wanted to go with it, he shoots her. And so I'm thinking, like, yeah, 
maybe just have her like just stay wretched and not soften up. So maybe she shoots him and then he before she can like like she's like flaunting it, like walking over to him to like put a put one in his head, to, like have him pull out his gun from his jacket, like <laughs> and get her before she can get him. Yeah, like she's so cocky. So in her mind, it's like he doesn't have the guy. I like, like that. He never would. And I think because I mean, like you were saying, even in the grocery store scene, everything that she does and, and Tim, you said this perfectly, too, with the towel, like she's testing him in the beginning to see if he's interested and then really, like, it's like a bait and switch of, I'm going to make you think this is your idea, you know, straight down the line, just like you said. It's like everything is such a subtle manipulation. And so I think at the end of it, she's like, so what if I've been hanging out with Nico? Like, you don't care. You're not going to do anything about it. And so I, I just, I think it felt like a departure, I guess, from from her true self. Yeah. Yeah, that's I like that. I think I like yours better than mine. Um, <laughs> so I wrote this is the only possible like there are certain things that are just affected by the times, as Tim pointed out. Like I kind of wanted a steamy sex scene added in here to add the tension, the danger of the situation. So if you're making this in the '90s, I think you actually get to see the gunshots, which would be helpful as climaxes to this. And I think a better death scene would be possible, as you mentioned, Lizzie. I want a little more violence and I want a little more sex. So, um, but, but I mean, everything is there and the content's what I'm coming back for. So, I mean, it's not coming up short in these areas either. So just because the deaths are off screen or the shots are off screen, I can get around that. I'm still satisfied. So these are just things as a modern viewer, I'm sitting there going like, I would be cool if you would just give that thing to me that I know is happening already. So. I kind of want to see Nico too, by the way. We never see him. Barely. Yeah. He's, he's like a background furniture almost. Yeah. Best quote, Tim. Lizzie just said it a few minutes ago, straight down the line. To me, that sums up their, their relationship perfectly because it should be you know, a, a, an exciting, romantic, new, new adventure relationship. Oh, we're together all, all to the end and blah, blah, blah. And at the end, she uses it to threaten him. Like, no, Walter, you're not going anywhere. Straight down the line. Uh, and I think it's just it's just a great through line. Yeah. Now, yeah. Lizzie, best quote. From almost the very beginning, he says, how could I know murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? Uh, honeysuckle. I love that line. Mm-hmm. A really, really intriguing line. Yeah. Fitting for this, for sure. I'm going to go with the, the it, it's that heartstrings. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a softie here. I love the, you know why you couldn't figure this one out, Keys? I'll tell you. Because the guy you were looking for was too close. Right across the desk from you. And then Keys goes, closer than that, Walter. And then Neff says, I love you too. So, so sweet. And it's, so, it's good. Dad, your heart breaks for Keys. They shot him going to the electric chair scene, and thank goodness they didn't use it. Like, they chose to just end on this. So they cut off the additional scene for this ending. So Billy Wilder made a great editing decision to cut that off, by the way. That would be that would rob you of the poignancy of this moment. So again, crime doesn't pay. It had to be the message. So you had to see him have this horrible death in the electric chair. But you know, I like this touching ending so much more. There's a goofy line that I did like. I don't think it fit 100%. But there's a there's a wide-standing notion that just because a man has a big office and a and a desk that he's an idiot and doesn't know what's going on. I I, I thought that was pretty fun too. We've come full circle on a five-star scale, half-star intervals. Tim, what would you give double indemnity? I'm impartial, but I, I got to give it five stars. I mean, it's the, you know, 
top 100 movie of all time, top thriller of all time, top romance of all time. I mean, you're not wrong. It's a, 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 there's no shame in it. It's okay. Five. Yeah. Badge of honor. Wear it. Lizzie, five star scale. You no, know, I'm going to give it five stars too. I, I just, I, there's really very little about this movie that I would change. And to me, the staples of my personal rating system is entertainment and just overall heart and rewatchability. And to me, it just checks all those boxes. I would absolutely watch this again. No problem. I'd recommend it to a friend. The character development is just perfection and it's really entertaining to watch. It's just, it's the perfect move movie. Yeah. This movie has it all. It's made well. It's historically important with good reason. And I have, discovered i love this stuff and i didn't even know it so i mean it's this is giving me what i wanted and i didn't even realize i wanted i love this noir stuff i love the femme fatale characters i love the flashback confessions and i like the german expressionism influences coming through with all the lighting i mean this is pushing it over the edge but as lizzie said it's just incredibly entertaining movie this is this is just a great ride and if anyone says i don't like old movies this would be high on my list of like oh yeah well, maybe you should watch Double Indemnity. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's a really nice introductory movie because it's just, it, it feels timeless. Yeah, yeah. By the way, I think Laura that we also covered, I keep plugging that one, is out there in Maltese Falcon. Well, some of these are making me very happy. So uh, I want to go further into this one. Tim, we have talked about this a little bit. We, we had a good time here. Where should we go next? Like, what, if we were to want to go deeper down this well, what would you hand us? I think one, uh, if I only had uh, one other one to recommend, it would be Scarlet Street, uh, directed by Fritz Lang with Edward G. Robinson in the starring role. He's, he's, he's really, really good. And Joan Bennett, who's an actress. I think that's her name. Uh, she's not very well known nowadays, but she was a great femme fatale right up there with Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, Scarlet Street, Fritz Lang. Interesting. Nice. I'll put that in my memory banks for sure. I'm giving this five stars as well. I just loved it. It was just so good. So, Lizzie, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Let's do it. All this plotting and murder and crime, if, if it feels too serious for you, perhaps it's time we escape to a wonderful world of fantasy. And if there's a better era for fantasy than the 1980s, I don't know about that. Let's check it out here. Option number one, The Princess Bride from 1987. A bedridden boy's grandfather reads to him the story of a farm boy turned pirate who encourages numerous obstacles, enemies, allies in his quest to be reunited with his true love. Option two, The Labyrinth from 1986. 16-year-old Sarah is given 13 hours to solve a labyrinth to rescue her baby brother Toby when her wish for him to be taken away is granted by the Goblin King Jareth. And option three, Excalibur from 1981. Merlin, the magician, helps Arthur Pendragon unite the Britons around the table of Camelot even as dark forces conspire to tear it apart. Lizzie, what'll it be? It can't be anything other than Princess Bride. I mean, that is just, it's the best. That's, that's what we've got to do, 100%. And Tim, thank you so much for coming on for your first time. We really enjoyed it, man. Thank you so much. We hope you had fun. I did. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm so glad you both like Double Indemnity. Yes. Thank you so much for introducing it to us. Yeah. It's a 15-star movie because that's uh, all three of us five-started. So. That's right. And thank you all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us because we want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us on YouTube. 
Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Lizzie? If you're a bird, I'm a bird. <laughs>